Welcome to Sci-Fi Tech Talk, the podcast where we explore the technology of sci-fi. I'm Julie Keel, and with me today is Mike McPeak. Hello. And Jeff Sire. Hello, everybody. Well, this week we're going to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is getting to be a really old movie. Oh, my God. But anyway, quick synopsis from IMDb is that after an encounter with UFOs, a line worker feels undeniably drawn to an isolated area in the wilderness where something spectacular is about to happen. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. Yeah, and thanks to this movie, I can never look at mashed potatoes the same way again. Yeah, no kidding. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> this movie was did come out in 1977, and John Williams was the uh, uh, composer for it. Anybody, you know, ring a bell with anybody there? Um, yeah. Star Wars? <laughs> Star Wars, yeah. So this came yeah. out virtually the same time as Star Wars. Talk about two different... Well, views of you know off-world beings. You know, I sat down. I was doing looking at IMDb and all that kind of stuff. And they were talking about little Easter eggs in the movie, and I didn't catch some of them. Somebody said that when the mothership came in, you were supposed to have seen like an upside-down R2D2 unit on there. But maybe <laughs> I need a bigger screen. I couldn't see that. But did anybody catch the Jaws theme when they were going through their little musical rendition at the end of the uh, the movie? That one I did catch. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. That one, I don't know that I caught it, but I caught it. Right. Yeah. Well, because I'm sitting there, I'm going, and they do the doom, 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 doom. I'm going, hey, that's Jaws, you know, another Spielberg uh, movie. So I'm going, okay, you know, there's there's a few little Easter eggs in there. That one I managed to catch, but the rest of them were kind of subtle. The one that killed me, and these aren't Easter eggs, but, you know, they were more from, like, the 70s was, like, the Piggly Wiggly trucks. Oh, that, yeah. just, that just killed me. I'm sorry. Well, what was the what was the I, I somehow missed that. What was the point of the army having all these piggly wiggly trucks? Oh, it's you know to be able to transport goods incognito, basically. They well, had it they, loaded up with all of that equipment that they were setting up by uh, Devil's Tower, but they put it in supermarket uh, and ice cream trucks. Okay. Yeah, because who's going <laughs> to suspect a you know supermarket truck rolling across yeah. the plains? Especially so. when, yeah. Well, piggly wiggly back in that day was you know on every corner in every small town so it was it was very common truck to see anyway we're talking about close encounters of the third kind and spoiler um so yay (laughs) there's aliens out there supposedly so yeah this one starts off really um almost on the documentary style again where you know here's a report of this happening you know you you start off (laughs) i have to admit the movie started off in what, you know, okay, we're sitting here in the middle of a blizzard right now, and it starts off with a storm going on in the movie. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a blizzard outside, and there's a blizzard on the screen, until I realized, no, it's not a blizzard, it's a sandstorm. I, <laughs> so, I, I take the sandstorm, it's warmer. Yeah, no kidding, although, I don't know, I prefer probably <laughs> frozen snow, to eat frozen snow than sand, but anyway. But, um, yeah, it started off with some very familiar faces as well, um, at least... Um, you know, they they looked like think people I'd seen in other movies. Um, well, well, one thing I wanted to, since we're kind of getting there, one thing I wanted to mention that that French guy, uh, uh, Francis or uh, Francois. Francois, yeah, Francois Truffaut, he directed Fahrenheit Fahrenheit four fifty one, which was another movie that we've done on. Oh, here, so. I didn't realize it was that guy. Okay, see, and I had to go look because there was enough resemblance 
with that guy to to the guy the French guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark that I had to go verify that it wasn't him. Yeah. And it wasn't. But it was like, man, here we've got this French guy and they've got kind of the same body gestures and you know, they're French and so I had to check. Well, but that's no. why I always troll the IMDB trivia just to find those little tidbits out there. And and so like I said, that's a connection to something else we've done here before in another, you know, sci fi uh movie. Yep. Yep. Had you had you guys seen this before? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, a long I, time ago. I I have two my probably two biggest sci-fi guilts are I've never seen I had never seen this and I've never seen ET. Okay, I've never seen ET either. Yeah. That might have to go and, on the agenda. Okay. This is like I don't think they could make oh, sorry. They could do do this today, but there was a couple of things that while I was watching it like that scene where he's losing his mind and uh he's like digging up the garden and throwing dirt in the right like that's done tongue in cheek kind of ha 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 like we don't look at people with mental illness like that today i don't think that scene could not be shot and presented that way today like i felt really uncomfortable watching that well, I think they could, but there probably wouldn't be the light-hearted, yeah. light-hearted quality, but the somewhat humorous quality. I think they yeah. would all be kind of the, the uh, instead of the neighbor blowing her uh, hair while leaning out the window. You know, they might be kind of picking up the phone and maybe dialing nine one one or something like that. Yeah. There would be right. a darker overtones. And the comment about "Are you crazy?" would probably not fly. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's true. That that very much was true. And and on the flip side of that, um, you wouldn't have been fired. I mean, the guy lost his job because of that. You couldn't do that now. I mean, no. That would be, you know, not. <laughs> you wouldn't do that now. You would you would get the guy some help, or at least try to. I mean, whether or not you can actually get people help sometimes is an issue. But um, it's you know, I I think everybody would have recognized it as a mental illness as opposed to oh my god, the guy's losing right. it. You know. And, and there was something else that I thought, especially with you guys uh, living where you do, I've been to Devil's Tower. I wondered about and, that. And I, I know that there's uh, there's a long kind of lead up to getting there. Yep. So there's none of this driving with maps out and screening yourself off. And so <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of kind of funny. But uh, Mike, you've been to Devil's Tower? Yep. Yep, oh. I have. Okay, Bear Butte, as it's otherwise known as well. Um it's interesting, though, too, that when you drive to Devil's Tower, it is very hidden until you come over a ridge. Yeah. And boom, there it is. Yeah. So it's, you know, the idea that it could be um, kept secret or, or cordoned off isn't entirely outside the realm of possibility. And it is freaking middle of nowhere Wyoming where, you know, the idea of and them evacuating thousands of people it's like there aren't thousands of people within 100 miles of devil's tower you know you got hewlett yeah. wyoming and the next biggest town is you know spearfish um yeah yeah somebody did the math and they figured out it would be like you know maybe you know tens uh or a few thousand few thousand people. ten thousand yeah. people max yeah, at the most. At the most. Unless Sturgis was in town, that's a completely Well, that's going to be another thing. The motorcycle yes. rally, yes. If, if the motorcycle rally is going on, and yeah. it's, I won't even go there. Wednesday is a big event in uh, near Devil's Tower. <laughs> but, um, yeah, then, then you'd be dealing with a few hundred thousand people, but that's another matter. But, yeah, uh, it's interesting. There were, the, there were so many bits of this that were, you know, part of part of it is just the the state of the, the fact that it was filmed in 1977 the fact that um 
you know, UFOs are no longer really a thing. You know, back in the 70s, they were kind of still a thing. Yeah, and then like that one guy at the meeting talking about how he'd seen Bigfoot, and I'm kind of rolling my eyes and going, yeah, I, I probably remember this guy. You know, cause the mid-70s, there was a lot of people, conspiracy theories and, you know, little green men and aliens, and, you know, that was still a, a, a thing in the 70s. So uh, I don't think they had to go too deep to find that uh, that trope for that movie. Right. And the the... The flip side of that, I will give Close Encounters kudos. It was it it so many sci-fi shows kind of do the the Alfred Hitchcock thing, and they just kind of hint at what the aliens are. You know, like they would end with the the ship coming down, and you would never see anything. Um, right. You know, whereas Close Encounters went all the way. They the ship came down. Communication was made. Aliens came out of the ship. You got to see them, um, not in you know great detail. They were silhouetted, you know, some of the time as well. But they didn't avoid it. They put it straight out there. They put out a ship design. They put out a communications protocol. They put out you know a, an an alien species. Uh, and they just they didn't avoid that and i and i got to give them kudos for for going that extra step because it, to some extent especially at that time that was kind of groundbreaking it just you you didn't really you know and i understand we had weird things you know prior to then the the, the 50s sci-fi with the the freaky aliens and whatever but it, it close encounters just seemed to have have taken it all the way you know they they didn't do any shortcuts and, you know, we've speculated on this show at different times about, you know, if we meet extraterrestrial beings, what they'll look like. And, you know, you know, Jeff, you've kind of speculated they won't look like humanoids. But I don't know. I, I tend to take the other side. I think that the humanoid form uh, is the most versatile form out there for running, swimming, climbing, all kinds of different activities. So I don't know. I think that if we do meet some, unless they are like, you know, shapeshifters and can take on whatever shape, then all bets are off. But I, I agree with you. Like the human form is the, the pretty much the ideal form for doing what we do. Right. So if we meet another race that does what we do and evolve the same way, like in evolved in open planes and, you know, simple tool use and going on from that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they're bipedal with, with multi-fingered, uh, uh, quote-unquote, hands. But that's assuming they evolved in the same kind of environment that we did. Because, like, uh, evolution is, a, is a, a product that will seek to put forward the best kind of design, right, by by competition and the best design advances. So if if you have a, a, an alien race that grew up on a planet similar to ours and the dominant species evolved in a similar environment to what we did, yes, I then I'd agree with you. They probably wouldn't – they'd probably be something we'd recognize. But if something evolved in – gas vents or some other thing <laughs> you know like all bets are off then like like and, well, and like i said before like i think that the the uh challenge would be for us to even recognize it as intelligent yeah the old or, everything goes back to strike that you right. know the old the devil in the dark those uh silicon based life forms as opposed to carbon based life forms well, you know, using that, then maybe we have been visited by uh, 
you know, extraterrestrials and they died on, because this isn't the atmosphere that they were used to, just as if we were to, you know, land on a planet that was, you know, gaseous in nature and we couldn't breathe the air, we would die. So, well, you know, maybe there have been. I think there's something here. to be said for the, like the more we study what we consider, again, quote unquote, lower animals, the more we say like, wow, you know, like the, the, the part of a, a whale's brain that handles sound is like four times the size of the part of our brain that handles sight. So you just kind of, when you start to say, well, you know, the part of some animal's brain that handles emotion might be bigger than ours. So like there, there's, there's the, the idea that we are, you know, the, the top in every category doesn't really, you know, I, I think the more we learn about it, there's very possibly there's stuff going on even with animals on Earth that we don't fully understand to the point that, you know, emotionally or whatever. Like, I, I am not putting forward the idea that, you know, there's some kind of, you know, chipmunks that are actually secretly doing calculus or something like that. <gasps> Squirrels <laughs> but, do, though. I know they do. I've yeah. seen them. But mm. there are things going on. I, I have no doubt in the animal kingdom, especially in, in certain mammals with uh, brains of a similar or bigger size than ours, there are things that are going on that are more complex than than we see ourselves. Like I, I'm not, I would not be surprised if there are whales or dolphins that experience emotions that are beyond our capability to experience. Okay, and that comes that right back into Close Encounters because yeah. one of the things that happens in Close Encounters is that essentially these guys are given, so we call them subliminal messages, subconscious messages, that they are driven to find the answer to. And so basically, it's some form of communication that, you know, even in the movie, it's depicted as that's that's hokey BS. And I'm kind of on in your camp there, Jeff, where ho- I don't know if it's hokey BS or something we just haven't discovered yet. Well, I mean, uh, I, is it communications or was it an IQ test? I mean, are they trying to see if that we've reached the level that they can that we can comprehend you know what they're you know doing because it wasn't like you know a lot of the, what we've seen portrayed in movies is they walk off the ship and say take me to your leader no they uh they give you sights and sounds they give you clues it's almost like they are yeah. testing us are you guys ready to meet us yet or well, not well the, the the french guy asked asked him uh, richard dreyfus's character at one point are you an artist and that is the co- seems to be the common thread that these people are 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 creative more creative people who are more open to things um have you guys ever seen the demonstration of um, what makes an artist an artist and the difference between an artist's eye and a normal person's eye? No. No. When you're drawing, like if you, you get a, an artist on one side and a, you know just a quote unquote, uh, I've said that three times now, but like just a, a normal person beside them and like draw a straight line. And they both draw straight drawings, draw a circle, draw an oval. So the point is, the artist can't not draw these shapes any more perfectly than a, than another person. So why is it that they are able to draw a, a, a whole picture where the other person can't? And the idea is because they can actually see it better. And it's not that their eye is better, but they a part of their brain has been trained and is more open to breaking down visual content into its structure and then translating that into lines and circles and curves and stuff like that and, and putting it to paper. So the idea is that 
for the actual structure of what they're drawing, the artist can't draw the line or the circle any more perfectly uh, than the other person, but he's able, he or she is able to visualize it and and break it down into those shapes. So like their their brain is working on a different sort of set of rules than the other person through a combination of of natural ability and training, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because I've watched um, uh, a girl that graduated with my son. She's a really good artist. I watched her one time just take a black piece of paper and a piece of chalk, and she'd make a few lines, kind of brush it with her hand, make a few lines, and suddenly a picture popped out. And I'm going, you know, I can screw up a stick figure. So, yeah, I'm uh, uh, amazed at, you know, the artistic person that can take stuff and take it from their mind and put it on the paper. So there is something special going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not disagreeing. I also think it can be taught to some extent. I mean, to an I, extent. I, I don't oh, know it, that. Actually, I, I um, my ex uh, brother-in-law was a tremendously good artist, and I went through a phase when I was uh, married to my first wife, and the idea was uh, I wanted to learn how to to draw better, and so he showed me a book called uh, Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that kind of explains that, you know, you ha- in order to draw, you have to be able to really see. And the way it gets you to draw things was you take, uh, you more or less kind of uh, not trace it, but you copy a picture. But in order to get your, your, the left side of your brain to see it, or the right side or whichever size you're, you're trying to train, I can't remember which one. I think, I think it's your right side. Right side's creative, yeah. It's quote, but unquote. You take the picture that you're drawing and you turn it upside down. So the idea is... <laughs> When, you, when you're looking at a normal picture, it's like, say, just a portrait picture of a person, your brain sees it, and then your brain does this thing of, like, uh, just kind of like, oh, that's a person. I know what that is. And it just kind of really throws a lot of the information away, mm-hmm. whereas when you turn it upside down, you're not allowing your brain to recognize it as a person anymore, and you're forcing that right side of your brain to break it down into shapes and angles and stuff like that. And... It sounds hokey, but I'll tell you, like, wow, it really, really works. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, what you would do is you would draw a grid on the uh, on the on the picture, and then you would take the 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 paper that you're drawing on, draw a similar grid, and then you just kind of look at the where the lines are going, and you just copy over the lines, and it forces you to start to see how where all those lines are and how they fit. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and that's true, I guess, in, in Close Encounters, almost everybody who had an encounter was f- compelled to do some art, you know, whether it was with, you know, mashed potatoes or charcoal drawings or, you know, what it seemed like that was a common theme that they may not have been, quote unquote, artists, but after their experience, they were compelled to release it somehow through art. Well, I'm just thinking, what about the three-year-old? I don't think he, uh, of course, he was three years old. Yeah, I was going to say, he's three years old. Everything's <laughs> art. I mean, the whole world yeah. is yeah. nothing but finger paints, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that that kid hasn't been broken down <laughs> at right. that point. Right. Well, there's an old saying about, you know, every every child is born an artist. The trick is to remain one as you grow up. I, I think Picasso might have even said that. I'm not sure where it comes from, but, you know, yeah, that's... Uh, it, you you gotta like the kid. I mean, the kid is the only one who's like, "Wow, this is so cool!" The yeah. whole time, you and know? the kid's completely unafraid. Right? Completely unafraid. Yeah. 
completely doesn't, you know, totally not outside of his realm of experience. I mean, it's just one more new thing in the world. Yeah, and, have, and we, to, have we uh, have we done contact? I no. Think, no, no. Well, there. It made me think when I saw the kid's face and just like you know the kind of the wonder look on his face, and in the book Contact and in the uh, in the movie, there's both this point when they're flying through the time tunnels, and uh, uh, I can't remember Jodie Foster's character, but she sees it and she starts to cry, and she said they made a mistake; they should have sent an artist. Like because they they picked her as the perfect person to go because she was a scientist and she's like this is so beautiful I can't describe it they should have sent somebody An better artist to, yeah right. yep yeah. interesting oh, well let's see what else happened at the very beginning we had the sandstorm experience where they found the the planes from you know fifty forty years ago according to the movie I guess yeah. um, there was one other thing that happened what was it. There was a boat in the middle of the desert. Yeah, that was a little bit later on, but... Okay. Um, There's well, one other they, thing. Anyway. There was the people in India that were singing That's the same one. gnome. And, uh, again, the the trivia, somewhere in there, uh, and I think I saw him, Gary, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead is supposed to be in that oh, really? scene somewhere. I think what? so. I think I, yeah. I gotta go back and watch it again now. Well, I think it was when they were panning by. I think he was the one guy in front that looked like the toothless dude because he had kind of the beard and the look and everything. There was a you know it looked like he was fairly close. But I, again, that's one of those things I went looking for in there. I think I saw him. But if anybody wants to point him out, that'd be fine too. Yeah. Um, one of the first things that happens when we get onto the you know the main story is that the power grid essentially goes down. And they they don't, I guess at some point they describe it as a drain on the grid, not a sabotage or not a disruption. It was just a huge drain. Right. Um, or just disruption. No, no, that's... Well, that's, yeah, that's, they probably described it as a drain, but you know, I'm wondering if it wasn't just a, a disruption because their equipment was probably screwing cars. No, I think what happened, well, I, to me at least in that part of the movie, they basically the the, the conversation or the dialogue, the, the point of that was the fact that no, somebody has not interrupted the power system. They haven't sabotaged it. They haven't mm. um, destroyed it. They haven't damaged it in any way. They are simply sucking power out of it to the point that nobody else you know has any. Um, so, you, you know, which as in the case of a you know close encounter an alien invasion um it's like okay so they're pulling power off of our grids that's an interesting little twist to the story well would, i guess i was just wondering why because you would think you know they got starships probably superior power to ours why do they have to go and you know suck our little electricity that we got here or is that just their way of kind of knocking on the door and getting our attention. Yeah, and that's that's to me something that I thought about at the end too. It's like, okay, we have essentially you have these, shall we call them scout vehicles that are going about in at least two or three different right. forms, and then you have, shall we call it, the mothership um, that's capable of going through what we are going to assume is interstellar distances, um, but s somehow it can also come close to the ground and not even like blow over sheets of paper you know um, <laughs> really so you know whatever small details but it, it was one of those things where you you look at it and it's like there's there's an interesting propulsion slash 
energy system in this whole thing. Well, and it must do time travel or something because the people that were taken from the plane and from the ship hadn't aged, even though the I forget when the ship was, but the plane was 1945, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that was like by the time that movie was made was about 30 years later, and those people hadn't aged. So either they were kept in stasis or these ships time travel and they the uh, the occurrence from when they were picked up to when they were brought back to earth was you know negligible uh in uh, anyway so it, it, like i said they were either kept in stasis or they traveled in time speaking of time travel it was kind of interesting that you know this was a mid-70s movie to take a look at the mid-70s technology uh, you know yeah dial phones rotary phones <laughs> I was quivering all through this movie going, oh, crap, I remember this stuff. Yeah, CB radios, uh, the old Ford pickups, got to love them. Um, the, um, uh, what else, TV sets. Uh, the, the the dishwasher, oh, my God, did you guys see the dishwasher that was blowing apart in that lady's no. um, kitchen? Yeah, no, you, you put the, it was a top-loading dishwasher. Um, old school. Top-loading, oh. Top-loading dishwasher, that. yep. Yeah, it's basically operated, you know, kind of like a wash machine where you you put the dishes in on top and put another tray on top. Anyway, so that was old school. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of an interesting little um, bit of time travel from the movie (laughs) making. Oh, let's see. What else was in here that was cool? Um, Okay, can we we just jump way ahead to the end? And, um, oh, well, okay, time travel as well. Way to way to rock the old you know seventies station wagons rental car you know <laughs> flying through the air in the middle of Wyoming you know pastures, love it, but um, government conspiracy blah blah blah. Um, apparently, you know the the movie depicts the fact that the government was essentially prepared for this. Can we say that the military was prepared for this? Because they had this elaborate thing set up where they were going to, you know, evacuate everybody from northeast Wyoming, and um, but they'd already set up essentially a command center at the foot of Devil's Tower. Oh, don't ask me how you do that while the thing is open to the public. Um, and all these people, the people that were at that, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call it a command center. Um, were trained, were prepared, were drilled, were schooled in how to deal with this. Um, they had a plan. They had the communications. They had musical experts there. They had linguistics experts. Nobody, f- okay, one or two people flinched. Um, but, you know, essentially all this goes down and everybody knows their place, knows how to respond it knows what to expect to some extent um which okay i i i'm not much of a conspiracy theorist because i just don't really think anybody's that good to pull that kind of stuff off but um the 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 plant the the prepper you know the the level of preparedness for the event was a little interesting i guess well 
first of all, you know, I mean, I remember growing up, I knew people that believed in these conspiracy theories. I mean, they would defend to the death, the, you know, their belief in some of these, you know, conspiracy theories that the government had all these secret plans. You know, now we call them black helicopters or the NSA or whatever. Um, but I mean, these people were convinced that, you know, the government had these secret plans. So, uh, you know, that, you know, I, I could believe the, uh, you know, the conspiracy theories, you know, that they were putting forward. But the other thing you have to remember is, though, um, you know, we were still in the Cold War with um, Russia, so we were prepared for different contingencies. So I just, to me, that wasn't, I mean, yeah, there was a few things pulling, trying to, like, building that landing strip, you know, behind the mountain there without anybody noticing. I don't know what story they told to encompass that. But, you know, as far as the level of preparedness goes, um, all of this just kind of, I just took it as an extension of, of, like, say, the Cold War effort that, you know, they were, A, looking for, you know, commies everywhere, and they were prepared for whatever contingencies. But but you had to prepare these people to, to I mean, the, it's one thing to get prepared for a communist invasion. It's another thing to get prepared for, we are going to greet aliens and not be afraid and not fire upon oh, yeah, them true. and not run and scream and hide and there was just, there deal was with that it one? Yeah, in a very professional manner. We have a process. We're going to communicate slowly using these tones wherever they came from to, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to, we, we are expecting the people to come off the ship and we have to reintegrate them. You know, welcome home, sailor, sailor. Those type. I mean, they were ready for that. That was like, was that just one of their contingency plans, or did they somehow know that 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 was going to happen? Well, we don't know, but I mean, that's that's to me that was part of the wonder of the film was uh, at least how prepared they were for the the experience. I mean, most people would just. Freak out, you know. <laughs> they they had the red suits there, so they had people. At yeah, their, they had volunteers, I assume. Yeah. Well, and then how torqued were those guys when Richard Dreyfus got imagine? cut to the head of the line and got out on the ship? Do you think we hey, were here before this clown? Why does he get to go? And and, and do you think maybe he could have grabbed one of their duffel bags as he walked off? You know, <laughs> can I please have a change of underwear as I leave? So you know, whatever. Well, you got people that travel across the you know universe. I think maybe they can figure out. I'm clothing. sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Obviously, the rest or of them had gotten by. Maybe it's a clothing optional ship. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's true. The aliens didn't appear to have any clothing on. Mm, At least from go. what we know. Maybe so. they just wear these special suits. Who knows? Yeah, maybe what they appeared to be is clothing. See, we don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, the, and the um, um, the government conspiracy part of that, too, um, you know... <sighs> You you could have a debate, and I guess maybe that's what we're here for, about was that actually a good idea that they had to evacuate people and, and lie to the public that, you know, it was this big radiation threat or whatever to evacuate them? Because really, if, if aliens had come down in the middle of some populated area, what the heck would happen, you know? I mean, well, was it was it actually a responsible way of dealing with it? Possibly, because yeah. what I'm seeing, there would be some people that would, you know, welcome it. There would be some people that lose their ever-loving mind, thinking that this is, you know, either the second coming, mm-hmm. you know, or you know, maybe it's the end of days, and they're going to go, you know. I, I think it could provoke all sorts of, you know, different types of hysteria. I'm going to give the government, I don't always trust the government, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt in this scenario that they wanted to bring the aliens in, kind of get 
things situated and do a, a controlled release of information rather than having them come down, like you say, or, you know, start a panic, uh, start all these people with uh, all their different conspiracy theories running off in different directions and just stirring up trouble. Yeah, so I mean... Per- I, personally, I would always rather see just... Uh, I don't think the government, any government, generally has enough faith in the people um, because I, I would sooner see them just tell me the truth about everything. Now, in this situation, I don't know how you're going to spin it and say, yeah, we need all you people to leave because we think aliens might be landing here. I don't see how you're going to do that. But, like, but just... Uh, uh, I mean, if you ever had to come up with a scenario for a benevolent conspiracy, yeah. this might be the one. I mean... I I don't know I, I don't know how I feel but it just to me yeah. you know it, I understand conspiracy theorists and I understand you know mass hysteria and that kind of stuff and uh, you know I, I'm not much for government conspiracies and I don't know that you know first off I just don't think we're capable of even pulling one off but you know this mm. in the way it's depicted in the show. If you want to call it a government conspiracy, it's not necessarily a bad thing. No. And the other thing is I like that the fact that you know the military was involved and the military didn't want to blow these guys out of the sky. There's right. a lot of movies where yeah, the you know they're coming to get us. Let's get the guns, you know, and shoot them before they get us. Yeah. And here yeah. it was a more mature mentality involved. Right. See, and nobody this, got this itchy is, trigger figure. I think this would be much more realistic. Um, because like the other the other mentality where oh we're army guys and we want to shoot those guys out of the sky. Like that just assumes that the army, that the military people are all stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, cause okay. If you are good enough that you could transport yourself here from another solar system, chances are whatever rinky dink little pea shooters, we're going to shoot at you. You, <laughs> there's no way they're going to do anything to you. Yeah. So, they're going to go, ha ha. That's funny. You know, yeah. And like, it would be the equivalent. Like I'm sure, if if you know the, the the general who's in charge would just be like, okay, well, this would be like me taking the first armored division, and we're going to go fight Hannibal as he crosses the Alps or something. Like, okay, the, fighting is not an option because we'll just get wiped out, right? Or it'll be either either we'll get wiped out or it'll be completely ineffectual anyways. So yeah. we need to go another route and. That, that's a it's just a big movie trope that you know the army guys all they want to do is fight mm-hmm. i per my time in the army like generally speaking you know uh <laughs> military people are the people that will fight if we have to but if we can solve this another way hey that's cool too okay and that reminds me of one of those early scenes at the beginning of the movie there was a near miss ufo in the sky that they were tracking on radar yeah. and i thought it was brilliant it's like do you guys want to report this as a ufo Nope. <laughs> nope. Don't want to do that paperwork. Do you guys want to report it? Nope. Not me either. Okay. None of us either. Nothing happened here. We're, nobody wants to do the paperwork. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that, that I believe. Yes. I, I, I agree. I thought that was a very realistic <laughs> uh, brilliant. scene. brilliant. Well, you know, bureaucracy trumps everything. So, <laughs> yeah, ne- never underestimate the power of paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no kidding. Oh. Uh, you know, the, the other thing I thought they did realistically in this movie was the t- the communication part. You know, like I said, they didn't come down and, you know, and talk to us. They were giving us uh, sights and sounds. And, you know, that I think, you know, if you're coming from space, you know, I think a, uh, a communication that's more uh, mathematical in nature, like the uh, 
the sounds would be or, you know, the, the uh, lights, something, you know, that you could have some sort of binary communication going on. I think that was a more realistic way of them communicating with us than trying to learn speech uh, or for them to try to, you know, adopt some sort of speech pattern that we would be able to understand. And they were going to make us learn theirs because I know a few guys, when they were playing the music there, said, okay, boys, this is like the first day of school here. Right. And the, right. the idea that it is music is brilliant as well because music is mathematics. And so, you know, and I can't remember who it was who said mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe. Or, you know, yeah. uh, it, it basically is the universal constant, is math. Um, so the fact that a, a communication it has some basis in math um, through music to me was just completely believable. I guess you know. Yeah. No, I, I thought that was I thought that was really good too. Yeah, yeah, the, and the the um, the the tones that they were using as well. They had they'd gone through an elaborate setup to also display them visually. They had the lights going on, and I'm not quite sure where that connection happened. But obviously, the uh, uh, alien ship also had you know tones connected to their lights, so that they're you know. I think that had more to do with the film production end of it. Like if you just had you know this big ship sitting there and some guy playing a keyboard and it and <laughs> it just making the sound back. That wouldn't have been as exciting as a big, you know, scoreboard with flashing lights except, and, and flashing lights from the ship back and forth. Except uh, that there's, you know, Morse code is a great example of where you can do it either through tones or through visuals. You can flash lights. And so yeah. it becomes a multimodal means of communication. You either, it's your choice. You can, you can hone in on the sound or you can hone in on the lights. Um, and so they're, they're kind of covering their bases, trying to find the method of communication that would actually work. Well, right. and I was going to say too, if you're, you know, intergalactic, um, uh, Voyager, you're going to want several different forms of communications because let's say you're out in a spacesuit and you lose radio communications you still need to be able to communicate well if you've got light and you can signal you know morse code or you know multicolored light that would maybe you know make it more efficient to communicate uh, you would want two different ways to communicate just to be safe and to make sure that you can get your message communicated. And I think that's maybe what they were doing here. And, you know, they came here and, well, they must, they, well, obviously they knew what they, we were like because they took people and, you know, was, I, you know, I don't know if they were conducting experiments on them. Now I'm thinking of the guy from uh, Independence Day about his, uh, you know, being probed by aliens and everything. But Which apparently. Was a thing back in those days. Yes, yeah. it was. Uh, but, you know, so obviously they knew something about us, but I think they just wanted to see which way was going to, you know, resonate with us. Was it going to be sound? Was it going to be music? And again, too, I think I, uh, I, th I said it before, I think maybe it was an IQ test. How adaptable are we? How quick can we come to understand things? Are we ready for this yet? And what was interesting to me was the way when the, they started communicating through the tones, technology-wise, okay, we're talking tapes. We're talking reel-to-reel -reel tapes. <laughs> Welcome to the 70s. But um, they did do it manually. Again, the first um, layer of communication was human. Um, it, it was You needed a human to process what was going on, but they were also recording it. And at some point, they flipped the switch and, so, and went, okay, we're going to, to automatic communication here. Boom, you know, back your hand off the, the keyboard and the you know, piano player takes over. Um, so the, 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 how quickly they were able to learn from that, I thought was a, 
uh, again, it just, to me, it just reinforced how prepared they were for that event to happen. Um, you don't whip that together in five minutes. Um, that, especially back then, oh my God, the, the, the you know, roomfuls of computers, you know, room size computers would have been required to do that. And we have probably more powerful computers sitting in front of us doing this podcast than they had available oh. in the mid-70s. So. Easily. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, easily. So, yeah, so that was, um, I, th- I thought that was kind of an interesting way that, you know, humans wound up being the first layer of communication because we have this, you know, innate need almost to identify patterns. Um, and so it you know, we were best able to, a human was best able to respond to what was going on until that pattern was identified. Well, and, you know, you mentioned patterns, and the other, you know, form of communication that they used in this movie was map coordinates. Yeah. And it wasn't until the cartographer was looking at these numbers that they were getting and goes, well, he kind of has that epiphany moment and goes, well, those are map coordinates. Well, then they get the big old globe out and start, you know, <laughs> looking at rolling out across That's the... ridiculous. Google Maps was not a thing then, huh? Oh, I know. The, the, the globe was was in the rack. Like, why not just take the, Roll the, the rack six-digit coordinates over and look it up on the, on the globe? And yeah. somehow they couldn't lift the thing either. I mean, if you've ever seen a globe, they're hollow. They're made out of paper mache. I mean, what do you mean you can't lift it? That was hilarious, but it was awesome. But to me, that also showed one thing, you know, coming from an, an academic research background in the distance past, one of the big um, areas of growth is cross-discipline research. Having a cartographer sitting in on a, you know, what were they talking about at that time? I don't even know what the energy, I can't remember what the real issue was. Yeah, Communications or something, you know, something that has absolutely nothing to do with maps. So when you get two people from two different disciplines, you know, suddenly connections are made that otherwise, if you had only people from one discipline, that, that just wouldn't even be made. And they can be crucial. They can yeah. be the, the the groundbreaking discoveries are coming from cross-discipline research. So I read uh, Bill Bryson's book called A Brief History of Nearly Everything, and it's like the history of uh, scientific uh, development. And... It, over and over and over again, it's the person from another discipline who comes in, and it's like this fresh set of eyes who, like, like uh, plate tectonics was discovered by a uh, meteorologist because all the geologists were sure, well, that can't be the way things. Yeah, Africa just looks like it uh, used to fit into North America and South America. It just looked, you know, and that it was the meteorologist who came in and was like, well, the same kind of rocks are on this on opposite sides, and there's all these other fossil things that are the same. So uh, I think they must have been. And if you look in the center, the, the, the newer rocks in the ocean are actually the closer to the center of the ocean, and they get older as they go apart. And, you know. Yep. Yeah, and you're right. It's the fresh eyes that uh, that do that. So, yeah, interesting group of people that were, speaking of fresh eyes, interesting group of people that were, um, shall we say, targeted for um, this close encounter. You know, the, the I'm thinking of the group of people that actually wound up on the helicopter with the, gla- the gas masks at the end. You had, you know, older folks, um, not a lot of young folks, I mean, basically, the I think the young, youngest person on that helicopter was probably, I don't know, say in their 30s uh, right. on up. So it wasn't like it was all ages. Well, they were the... That could people. also... 
Go ahead, Mike. Well, I was going to say, that's probably, they, they were ones that probably had the wear for all to come from across the yep. nation to get there. Yeah. Yep, and yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they mentioned that, too, that um, that there were probably many people who received the, shall we call them visions, but only a few could make the connection to actually, you know, say, oh my gosh, it's Devil's Tower, I need to get there. And then you're right, then on top of that, you had to have the means to get there. Yeah, um, and, so, and a 19-year-old in New York City probably wouldn't have any idea how to get to right. Wyoming, right? Even if he he found out about Devil's Tower. So would somebody in their 30s, well, I'll just get my car and drive there. Right, right. yeah, and a 12-year-old sitting in school would probably, you know, be grounded. <laughs> so, you know. Or putting the, you know, in the 70s terms, putting the nut house because, you know, you're losing your mind. What are these, you know, why are you carving your potatoes? Why are you, you know. yeah. There's all sorts of questionable, you know, mental behaviors for that time period going on. So that some people uh, may have been locked up. That's something that we haven't mentioned, but this movie has really kind of got into uh, uh, kind of like our our general culture. Oh yeah, it's- like that because that that uh, the, that series of notes, mm-hmm. and then you know how many. TV shows or movies? Have you seen somebody sculpt a mountain out of mashed potatoes in this, you know, crazed sort of thing? Like the, those two things from this movie really have kind of, you know, gotten into our cultural sort of zeitgeist. Yep, that, I, as, as a background. And like, uh, it was when I was looking through is Wikipedia, they had a list of about ten different places where people have uh, they've parodied the uh, the sculpture of the mountain, and the, it must have been just as many for the the musical notes. Well, you know, now every time you hear those notes, you're, you're going to think of this movie. Oh, um, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so it's become, you know, yeah, kind of a musical trope almost of uh, It's right up yeah. there with Jaws. Yeah, and like I said, and then when totally. I... Yeah, and when I heard that the, the ship's uh, doing uh, the Jaws thing, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it struck me. And, you know, same way with this. If you're in another movie uh, and you hear the Close Encounter music, you're going, it's going to trigger certain memories for you. So, it's yeah, it's ingrained ourselves into kind of the way that we think in this uh, this time that we're in. Yeah, I, again, I, I, I think one of the things that, that seared it into the pop psyche is the fact that it took the UFO, the alien craze shall we call it of the 70s and just hit it straight on it didn't it didn't pull any punches it didn't avoid it it didn't belittle it it didn't set it up on a pedestal it just it took it and went head on you know what if this happened and and all these things that people are you know reporting played out essentially true you know how how does all of this um, you know all these reports of people being abducted and seeing lights and all this other you know what happens if it really was aliens coming down to you know make contact? How would that happen and boom there 's the movie and you know in a i suppose you could argue a best case scenario um, there you go um, and to some extent, you know the movie you could argue that the movie kind of ends weird because great, we have this wonderful close encounter of the third kind that turned out magnificently and they grab one guy and fly off into the sunset it's like okay now what you know the people left on earth are doing what and really is that it we make contact with aliens and they grab a guy and they turn and leave come on so you know well, he's probably going to be their new ambassador, and maybe 
you know, it, yeah, it leaves you open to, you know, is, are they just going to disappear and then come back and see how we're doing? And, you know, this guy's going to be the communication link between them and us. Uh, uh, apparently, they've already, you know, studied us. So I don't know if they need to be studying him anymore. Yeah, those leave you questions. Or, you know, is this going to be like uh, maybe at the end of uh, 2001, is this going to be the new species will he come back will he be the new species that maybe populates the earth what we need is the close encounters of the fourth kind where you know he <laughs> returns and i don't know he said i mean you could argue what was the purpose of their visit you know research grab a guy and they had several already why did they have to come back for this guy i mean you know it, 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 there, as much as I have no problem with the movie, the way it ended or the way it played out or whatever, you know, you could sit here and just go, okay, so what? You know, <laughs> they came, they went. Now what? Yeah. Well, I think we've kind of, you know, said before on the podcast that sometimes those are the best movies rather than having it spelled out for you. Yep. <laughs> you kind of do your own ending. Yep. I was just going to say that. Like, this is my kind of ending. Like, you leave it to me, I'll... I'll fill that. Those right, because we could sit here for like three hours and debate, well, I don't know, what do you think? You know, what right. happens if they did this? And, and what about all those people that, you know, witnessed this event? What happened to them? Are they insane? Do they all go start sculpting mashed potatoes? Or, you know, what about, you know, all the people that were evacuated? How do they cover this? I mean, you could go on for for days. So, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, and if somebody else wrote the story, we'd be sitting there going, ah, that's stupid. They'd never do that. Right. You know, so you'd never get a satisfying ending. So I think it's best write your own. You know, this is a Steven Spielberg movie, and it at the height of his career. I mean, really, this has got to be one of the 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 seventy seven may be the height of his career. Um, and so, it, to me, it just picked up on all of the things that Spielberg is um, kind of known for. You know, the 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 sci fi, the fantasy, the positive outcome the good versus evil the you know massive archetypes the type of thing so um you know i got no problems with this movie whatsoever it's it's there's a reason it's a classic actually it's a two hour and 15 minute movie but boy it sure felt shorter than that yeah well, the good ones that you know that draw you in, so you are you know compelled to watch the movie, not sit there and you know how much longer do we have left here? Yeah. So, well, well given that nothing really happens, I mean, the the guy has a close encounter, and then the next two hours of the movie are him getting to Devil's Tower, you know, and you know, it's it's like an hour and a half is simply the the from when he has the the initial experience to when the ships start coming down. Is a lot like Lord of the Rings, where they're walking, they're walking, they're walking. You know, but it doesn't. It's not slow the whole time. It's like, you know. Well, it's kind of an hour and a half waiting for the other shoe to drop, and you're wondering, you know, what? Where is this leading? What's it leading to? Right. And and you see all these little bread crumbs along the way that you know where it looks like he's increasingly getting nuttier uh, or more insane. Um, when actually, you know, it's actually clarity dawning on him, and so you kind of see that growing process, and you know, and you know, we're part of the process with him. It's starting to make more sense for us as it's starting to make more sense with him. So I think it's it's because we're engaged in the process the same way that we are. We aren't being spoon fed this stuff. We're learning at the same rate that he does. Right. You know, one of the the um, loose ends, maybe I don't know. The French guy. We talked about him early on as we started 
and um, his role in the whole thing is huge. He's essentially directing, in charge of this encounter. I mean, he he really is the one who seems to have orchestrated it. Um, and we have no idea who he is, or where he come from, or how he knew that these were the things to do. And that's well, something else that really stood out for me is like, man, like that. Uh, that was another thing that would have to change if they were making that movie today. The idea that the it it certainly appears that this French guy is totally in charge of this whole operation. The U.S. military. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like I, I found, I found it hard to believe that that could even fly in 1977. Yeah. Well, and you are left with the question: Who is he? Why is he important? Yeah. Um, they never did explain him, and I guess it wasn't important to the movie. But yeah, you do kind of. It does make you ponder: Why did he have such power? Right. I mean, I, I got the impression. I mean, you really don't even know who he is. I mean, he's never like really formally introduced. You get the impression he's a researcher of some sort. Um, who's done something? I I don't know that I I even got the impression that he had his own close encounter experience. He seems to be jealous of those who have. Um, yeah. So you know, again, who this guy is, we don't really even know. But he's crucial to the show. I mean, crucial to the ex- to the experience that's being depicted. Interesting stuff. Odd that there was never a sequel to this one. It was hugely popular. Yeah. Well, and, and return on investment cost twenty million dollars to make, and uh, and uh, made like three hundred and thirty million dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's and, like I said, really odd then that there wasn't a sequel. Well, it almost didn't get made because the um, and it escapes my mind right now. The studio in charge of this was on the edge of bankruptcy. And so they kind of had to scrape some more money together to finish to do the special effects and get a few other things done. So, um, and it took him a while to you know get somebody you know a studio interested in doing this. So, uh, and it wasn't I think until he had because it's an idea he's had since more or less since childhood, and he you know, brought in some other people to kind of help him write the script. But um, it, it took him like Jaws and Star Wars to get him important enough for you know a studio to kind of take a chance. And then, like I said, the studio did do it. They kind of had to scrape together the money to finish the movie. So uh, it was one of those things that almost didn't happen. Well, and kudos to them too on the special effects because this is way before computer graphics, you know, were a thing. This was all models, um, and boy, they did not spare any detail in like the building of those ships or even you know like the special effects of uh, the mailboxes shaking and popping open or the 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 pickup truck with the the stuff flying around and popping open from the glove compartment or whatever um that's all you know analog effects and they were top notch um and I think they did try some, you know, CGI stuff because uh, CGI was really, you know, in its really infancy. Young, that, yep. And it just didn't look good. So they went back, you know, old school on this stuff. Yeah, it's and it totally holds up. I mean, there's nothing in this movie that special effects wise looks hokey. Just, I mean, some some old school special effects is like, yeah, whatever. This one is not that way. I mean, all of the special, it, it, you know, it, it, amazingly for a 1970s movie, it doesn't even feel that dated. The cars are old, but even the clothing isn't 
horrible, and the hairstyles weren't that bad. I mean, you know, it's it's it wasn't. You didn't look at it and go, "Oh my God!" You know, here we go, forty years ago. Um, you looked at it and went, "Okay, this is not current, but it's just kind of this generic, old school thing." And gosh, isn't the story good? Who cares what they're wearing? You know. Well, I think we've kind of reached the point too that it's far enough back, so the tech the tech is old, but you know it doesn't bother us. I think uh, it's those in between ones where they the shows where they have like the brick, big brick cell phones and and some of that stuff that drives us a little nuts because you know we just gotten away from that stuff. Well, <laughs> yeah, and it did kind of highlight the difference between you know 2014 and, and 1977. Um, Richard Dreyfus and his pickup truck. First off, he's got dozens of pairs of maps that are bigger than you know the steering wheel he's got a cb radio he's got an old school am radio i don't even think fm was on that dial um there you know there's just like wow you forget how far we've come <laughs> you know an, <laughs> an analog dashboard as opposed to all the digital stuff that almost every single car today has yeah. you um, had to actually crank down your windows, windows yeah God, all yeah. that stuff those old beater fords are awesome but uh, they uh they are not you know, current technology by any means. So, and if you think of all that stuff he had in his front seat of his pickup, we have all of that on our iPhones now. Yep. The maps would have been there. This, the communications would have been there. You know, everything. Well, um, as he's fumbling with the maps, I'm going, "Thank God for Google Maps." Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so. And he's trying to look up these grids and find all this stuff, and it's just like, you know, give yeah. me the GPS coordinates. Right, and they would yeah. have. Uh, uh, I've got my GPS suction cup to the inside of my windshield, and I just press a few buttons, and it just tells me where to go. Well, they would have had a GIS display before he even laid out, set out yeah. on the on the road, because you know they would they would have had a GIS database that would told him exactly where the problem is for starters, you know, and exactly how to get there in the second hand. So yeah, it's uh, the, we don't we don't do that too often today. It, you know, it's certainly not on a mission critical. Um, task like he had, you, you know, just go out there and fix it. You know, you would be like, okay, here is exactly where the problem is, and here is exactly how you're going to handle it. So I, I didn't really understand that that part. Like he's driving around looking for something. Well, they never said what the problem was. It seemed to be draining power from the whole grid. So like, where was he going? Yeah, I didn't yeah, quite like, catch that either. It sounded like uh, there was something with a transmission line, or I don't know what what he was looking for either. But it was a great excuse to send him out in the middle of nowhere. Hey, buddy, here's a plot device to get you out of your house and in your truck where we need you. There you go. That's it. And obviously so, the world depends upon you, so go yeah. forth and do a good thing. Good luck. So I guess what we're saying is outside of a few kind of you know little quibbles we might have had, this movie does kind of stand the test of time then. Yeah, I think so. I, I found nothing to... I, I think it's a, it's a very appreciable movie, and it, and, it, and I really liked it. But at the same time, like I said, I don't think you could make this movie today in the same way, uh, in a, in a, for a couple of reasons. Like certainly, like like you said, cell phone technology and stuff like that. There was there was a few things that you'd have to change around. I, I it really really stood out to me that whole scene where he's going crazy. Like just the way that that was handled. That would be filmed. Uh, like that, it's not like the scene would have to be completely revamped, but the whole kind of attitude that they the film took at that time, it wouldn't have been this but th- kind of 
humorous thing, right? But I think the plot, the story, even the, the oh, individual scenes yeah. would stand up, but you're right. They would just have to be altered slightly. That's he right. could, yes, he yeah. could be losing his mind from essentially PTSD, um, but it would have been, how that scene played out would change. But you would still have that scene. Yeah. You would still yeah, have well, the scene where I, the wife's I, like, forget it, I can't deal with this gun. Me and the kids were out of here, you know? I, I, I guess I would say that uh, if this movie was being made for the first time today, mm-hmm. you could do it, but it, you would have to tweak things a little bit yep. differently. Yep. Yeah. But, I think, but then that's, you know, things have changed in, in 30 years. You know, 40 almost. It was 40, almost yeah. 35. 35? 35, 35, yeah. 35 yeah. years, yep. yeah. <sighs> so, anyway, we need some good movies. All the good movies are 35 years old. So. Oh, there's plenty of good movies. There are, like Europa Report. Have I said that enough lately? Anyway. People who listen to us, if you, if you take one thing away from anything we've ever said, watch Europa Report. <laughs> yep. Hey, speaking of which, going back to Star Trek, did you notice the model Enterprise hanging from the ceiling? In, yep. uh, yeah, there you go. Oh, no, I didn't see it. Yeah, it was next yep. to the, uh, the pile of clay that he was working on, like his... Um, he was obviously a model builder, and uh, he had apparently built a model Starship Enterprise. Now, I saw that waving back and forth. Yep. And I figured you'd latch on to that. Of course I would. So, Well, anything else that we have on this show? No, not, I think we pretty much covered everything. You know, um, well, I'm sure we could go on forever, though, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we'll and, cut it off here, huh? Yeah, I think that's a good plan. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, so that will wrap up this episode of Sci-Fi Tech Talk. You can check us out at SciFiTechTalk.com, where there's some cool space junk available for purchase. Or you can follow us on Twitter, at Sci-Fi Tech Talk. And if you have ideas or comments, please send them to Sci-Fi Tech Talk at gmail.com. And reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Ah, Mike, where can people find you? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at DSC Chipman, and I have an about.me page at about.me slash Mike McPeak. That's M-C-P-E-E-K. And Jeff, where can folks find you? People can follow me on Twitter at Bronco Sire, S-Y-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Julie Keel. J-U-L-I-E-K-U-E-H-L and links to the other blogs, podcasts and whatever else I've got going on can be found at about.me slash Julie Keel. So that's it for this show and we will see you in the future.